chapter 6, and we're going <clears> to <throat> continue our study into the victorious Christian life. In chapter 6 and in chapter 7, I think we have some examples for us on the different ways that we can fight battles. In chapter 6, we're going to see Joshua go into to battle covered by the Lord's guidance and His direction. We're going to see Him go into battle walking in the Spirit. And we're going to see the victory as a result. In chapter 7, we're going to see that as a result of sin being in the midst of the camp, the children of Israel go to the next battle in the flesh. And in the flesh, they lose. The only battle that we're going to see Joshua lose in the entire conquest. And so we want to have eyes to see that. But more importantly, as we look at chapter 6 tonight, we want to see truly what can be accomplished if we walk in the Spirit. It's been asked, the question has been asked before, what could a man or woman accomplish if he or she was totally committed to the Lord? Totally. Not holding anything back, not having anything you know kept in reserve, just with their whole heart following the Lord. Going after Him with everything that they have. And I think the, the truth of what can be accomplished is in, Jer- or in uh, Joshua chapter 6. Because in Joshua chapter 6, what we see occurring is this incredible victory that men didn't have any idea on how uh, to accomplish. But Joshua, he knew where to go for help. The book of James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him go where? To the Lord and ask the Lord. And he'll give that wisdom, right? God will grant that wisdom to those who seek him, to those who ask. So we find, if you remember at the end of chapter 5, we find uh, Joshua walking around and and kind of wandering about what's about to occur, what's going to happen. He runs into a character, right? We saw it at the end of chapter 5. We'll just read it to remind ourselves. Uh, Beginning at uh, verse 13 of chapter 5, it says, And it came to pass... When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped And said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? So immediately we see Joshua wondering what to do. And he he comes to the Lord in an act of humble worship. He finds the Lord in a place he wasn't expecting to find him. And whatever it was about this person's, uh, the way this person looked, we know that he acknowledges that it's the Lord. And we know that it's the Lord because when he worshipped, that if it was an angel, the angel would have told him what? Get up. Don't worship. I'm just a servant like you. We see it in the, in the, in the book of Revelation a couple of times. So we, we recognize the angels don't receive worship, but God receives worship. So he falls on his face and he worships him. We have in theology what is called a theophany or a Christophany, an appearance of Christ prior to his incarnation in the flesh. 
It's very simple why, why we say a Christophany uh, rather than a regular theophany is simply because the Bible declares to us no man has seen God at any time. The, the Father is invisible, He's spirit. But the part of God that's revealed to man, that man can see, that man speaks to, that man talks to, that man has a relationship with, is Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 tells us that, that God is revealed to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. God is revealed. He's shown to us. So here, Jesus is as the leader, of the commander of the Lord's army. We see Joshua fall down in worship, fall down before him. And then he says exactly what we all ought to say when we come face to face with God. What do you want? What do, what I, what do you want me to do for you, Lord? What do I do for you? He doesn't, he doesn't ask, what can you do for me? Or here's what I want from you. He says... What do you want from me? What can I do, Lord? What, what am I here to do? And it's an important question for all of us to ask in our, in our uh, quiet time with the Lord, in the time that we spend with the Lord every morning. I hope it's a question we ask every morning because I believe every day God has a purpose for you on that day. A, a person, a witness to, a, a something <coughs> excuse me, that we can do for the Lord. Here, Joshua laying prostrate before the Lord says... What can I do for you? What do you want of me, Lord? What can I do? What is, what is your plan? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take the sandals off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. So we see an example of, you know, the way it was when Moses met the Lord, right? Moses at the burning bush. This bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed. It, it speaks of the Shekinah, the Shekinah. The Shekinah glory of God. That was the same glory, guys, that dwelt in the midst of the Holy of Holies. And the scripture lays out for us, Jesus is the light of the burning bush. He's the commander of the Lord's army. He's the man who wrestled with Jacob. And we talked about last time how every time someone comes face to face with the Lord, they leave different, change. Something's different about them, right? Jacob becomes Israel. Abram becomes Abraham. We talked about this before. We see here Joshua comes worried and, and, and not really knowing what to do about the, the battle that's about to begin. And when he leaves, he's got a plan because God has laid upon his heart the way that he's supposed to take Jericho. So he has this meeting with the Lord. The Lord says, take off your sandals. The other thing that that pictures for us is that holy walk. We come before the Lord in humble worship and we want to remember to have a holy walk. A holy walk that says, hey, I want to I wanna follow the Lord. I want to remember every day that I walk, it's as though I'm walking on holy ground. Because the scripture tells you and I something special. Doesn't it tell us that we are the temple of God? That not only we corporately as a church, but we individually are the temple of God. And as that temple... The scripture lays out to us in the, in, in the epistle of 1 John. If you say that you abide in Christ, you ought also, what? To walk as he did. Walk like he walked. How did Jesus walk? He had a holy walk, didn't he? A holy, righteous walk. So we want to walk that. I'm often challenged, you know, as I look at the scriptures, and the scripture declares to you and I that we're to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. And that living sacrifice is first supposed to be what? You remember? Holy. 
and acceptable. Holy. That means set apart. Set apart from what? Set apart from the world. Set apart from anything that will hold you back from being who God wants you to be. Now you and I, we're, from, from now, folks, until we see Jesus in glory, we're going to struggle with all of those same issues. We're going to struggle with being separate. We're going to struggle with the weights of life. Jesus would describe them to you and I as, as the cares of this world. And the cares of this world do what to our fruitfulness? It could choke it out, right? It choked out the seed in the parable of the sower till there was nothing left. It, it choked it out utterly, completely. So we understand that the cares of this world, different weights, different things to slow down our walk are going to be a pretty consistent part of our life. But at the same time, God says, on a daily basis, that we're to cast aside those weights and the sin that so easily ensnares us. And run the race before us, before us with endurance. We're going to see that Joshua and his army needed endurance. You ever gone out and done something all day long and seen no effect from it? Try walking around the city of Jericho once. Look back and think, what did I accomplish today? The army's still there. Walls are still standing. We need to run the race before us with endurance, being obedient to what God has called us to do. And then he goes on and gives us another clue. He says, for the joy set before you. Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, because he saw a relationship with you that was possible for all of eternity. If we turn that around, we can run the, way, the race before us with endurance and with joy if we put our eyes on the only prize that matters, Jesus Christ. Not all the other stuff. It's Him. He's the prize. He's the motivation. He's the reason why we do anything. We, we focus on anything, any way that we ought to. We want to come to Him. As you, as you consider this for a moment, let's look at Second Chronicles chapter 16. This is uh, becoming one of my favorite verses. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. It says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. I love that verse. It, it goes on to say, as, as, uh, he was uh, uh, laying this out with the king. He said, uh, but in this you've done foolishly. Therefore, from now on, you will have wars. But the Lord says, you don't have to have all these battles. You don't have to have all these wars because the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. And he wants to show himself strong, <coughs> excuse me, on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. The King James, whose heart is perfect toward the Lord. That idea is that same word that we get, we'll study in a moment, where we get the, the word seven, Shavuot, Shavuah, Shavuah. Anyways, you get the idea, which means to be full or complete, to be filled. And so it's, the Lord is looking for those people who will stand with him and say, Yea, Lord, I, I believe we can achieve the victory. And so here's Joshua, the commander of the Lord's army, and here are his, uh, his battle plans. He lays out for us. Now Jericho was securely shut up 
Because of the children of Israel, none went out and none came in. So after the, the witnesses, we saw the witnesses go in, right? We saw Rahab get saved. And they were, Rahab was told, as many as you can get into your house, they'll be saved. They're outside your house. They're not. How many ways is there to the Lord? One way. At Jericho, how many ways was there to get saved? One way. Rahab's house, the house of the harlot. They came to Rahab's house. So the two witnesses got in. Now after they left, the king knew they were there, right? So then Jericho is securely shut down. Nobody comes in, nobody goes out. They prepared for the siege. The army is, is out there. They can see the army. And they have prepared for the siege, shut the doors tightly, and they're ready. And the Lord, this fulfills something that God promised. God promised the children of Israel, when you go, I will fill the people, your enemies, with the fear of the Lord. Why was it all shut up? Because they knew what God was doing. They, don't forget, when they crossed over the Jordan River, they did it right in front of Jericho. You, it's hard to miss two million people crossing a river just outside of your city. They saw the water stop flowing and the children of Israel walk across. They already knew about the Red Sea and the other things that occurred, so they were afraid. They locked down the city. But in verse 2 it says, And the Lord said to Joshua, Now again, I believe in chapter... You know, the chapter divisions aren't in the Bible, right? The Bible was not written with chapter divisions. They're there for you and I to be able to find our place. I believe we're still talking to the captain of the Lord's army. And in chapter 6, verse 2, it says, And the Lord said to Joshua, the Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, the covenantal name of God, the YHVH. Uh, some people would say Jehovah. Others would say Yahweh. It's God's actual name. The Lord speaking to Joshua. I believe this is the commander of the Lord's army. And he said to Joshua, I have given Jericho to your hand. I have given is past tense. Have they fought the battle yet? No. Jesus said to you and I, he said, in this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Already, it's the same as saying, I have given you Jericho. Jesus Christ has purchased, won the victory. So when they go to battle at Jericho, they are fighting from victory, not for victory. When you and I go out day by day, we are fighting from victory. The victory is already bought and purchased. It's up to us to walk in that victory. He said, I have given you Jericho. It's done. But the walls were still standing, right? I have given you. This is a promise from God, from Yahweh, from Jehovah. Have you, have you ever had the promises of God and, and just really put your hope and faith and trust in those promises? Because that's what Joshua's going to do. He's going to trust in the promises of the Lord. He's going to put his faith and hope in what God is saying. I have given them to you. It's king and the mighty men of valor. They're all going to be his. We need to remember, without conflict, there is no crown. And we 
become a poor soldier of Christ if you suppose that you can overcome the things in your life without fighting. Fighting is part of every time, or not every time, but often Paul describes a Christian walk to that of a warrior. In Ephesians chapter 6, right? Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. And so we want to be able to stand. We need to realize that life is full of battles. If we think... I'm going to cruise along, and sooner or later, I'm going to be able to just put on a cruise control, and it's all going to get easy. We're confused. Because we are currently in enemy territory. If you were in a battle, in any of the wars we'd ever fought, and you were in enemy territory, it's never going to cross your mind that while I'm here, I'm going to be able to kick back. No, you're going to be... Uh, at your highest alert possible because you're in enemy territory. That means every day is a battle. Every day is an opportunity to be discovered by the enemy. Every day is an opportunity to, to, to bring victory or, or to see defeat. But there's guaranteed to be a battle every day. Jesus tells us our, this is not our home. Is anybody hoping that this is going to be it? Because I, I, I mean, I've seen some pretty places, but I'm not willing to trade them for the Lord. I'm not willing to trade them for Jesus. So we are in enemy territory here. So we need to recognize there's always going to be battles. So what do we hold on to? The promises of God. We cling to the promises of God. But what if it doesn't make any sense? Well, you're in perfect company. Have you ever read this? There's a lot of guys to whom... The things that they were facing didn't make any sense. Would you agree? Nonetheless, they clung to the promises of God and achieved incredible things. What would occur if men and women today clung to the promises of God in the same way and said, no, I don't, it doesn't matter what it looks like. I'm going to hold on to the promises of God and I'm going to live like I'm in enemy territory and I'm going to occupy till Jesus comes. That's the call for us. Well, it's the call for Jericho. We want to recognize that there is definitely, definitely going to be conflict in battle. And we see in this battle, it's going to be a battle that's not necessarily about flesh and blood, right? What does uh, Paul write to us in in Ephesians chapter 6? That we battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, right? So there's a, there is a spiritual battle that takes place. In 2 Corinthians, aren't we told that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal? They're spiritual and mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. What do we got in Jericho? A stronghold, right? How are we going to bring the walls down? God's way. By walking in the Spirit. By trusting in what God's doing and how God's working in our life. So in verse 3, you will march around the city, all you men of war, and you shall go around the city once. This you shall do six days. I want you to look at verse 4 carefully. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you will march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. Anything stick out to you in verse 4? 
Yeah, yeah, revelation for sure. But what else? Seven, 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 seven. You see a bunch of sevens? Seven, seven, seven. There's seven priests. There are seven trumpets. And seven trumpets definitely reminds us of revelation, right? Revelation speaks of the seven trumpet judgments that are coming. We see also, well, we'll get a little bit into that. But when we look at seven, number seven, again, comes from the root word to mean to be full, to be satisfied, complete. Or perfect. Perfect in the sense that perfect uh, pointing to completeness. So we have a symbolism here. We have a symbolism taking place that speaks of the priesthood and the trumpets. But the seventh day, what do we call the seventh day? The Sabbath. And the Lord said on the Sabbath day, you're not supposed to what? No work on the Sabbath day, right? No work on the Sabbath day. How much work are they doing on the seventh day? Seven times as much. Ooh, seven times seven. Isn't that interesting? Seven, 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 seven. Well, I, I think God's trying to get our attention in verse 4 that there's something here for us. There's something here for us to grasp. Well, let's take a look at it. Number seven is pretty clearly a part of Jewish life. Let's talk about it. The Sabbath was celebrated on the seventh day. Seven weeks from Passover was Pentecost. The seventh year was a sabbatical year. After seven sevens, 49 years, seven times seven, comes a year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee, which was the time of the restitution of all things. He goes on to, to lay out for us that in the seventh month, three of the Jewish feasts were part of the seventh month. Those three feasts are the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Interesting. All those things dealing with sevens, seven, seven trumpets, seventh day, seventh month, Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets, some people call Rosh Hashanah today, or the New Year, celebrating the time of Jubilee. The other thing we want to recognize in verse 4 is it says you will bring trumpets of what? Ram's horns, right? The ram's horn was the, the yubel, yubel. It's, uh, it's uh, what was used to signify the holier holidays. And it was a trumpet that was blown to sound the year of Jubilee. They blow that trumpet. It was not... Shofar means trumpet, okay? So there is the shofar, which is the long curly horn. Have you guys ever seen those? The long curly horn, that's the shofar. But this says the trumpet, the shofar of ram's horns, Yubal. The, the trumpet of Jubilee. It wasn't the ones that they blew, the shofars they blew to gather the people together, prepare for march. Now they're saying bring the, the trumpet for Jubilee, The Jubilee trumpet. That's what I want you guys to take with you. That's what you're going to play. It's like they're proclaiming the victory for seven days until the victory occurs. Every time they blow those horns, they're signifying Jubilee, the restitution of all things. When all debts are washed away, when the land goes back to the original owners, and we celebrate at that moment as they blow those trumpets... They celebrate the fact that the land is coming under new ownership. New ownership to the children of Israel. Well, he goes on. says in verse 5, And it shall come to pass when they make a long blast with a ram's horn, 
And when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall flat. And the people will go up from every man straight before him. There's his marching orders. His marching orders from the commander of the Lord's army. Here's what I want you to do. Now, we make a lot of jokes about how it must have been for Joshua to present this plan to his leadership. But to be honest with you, when I think about that, I don't really think it was hard for those guys. I think, I think there was probably some of them that were wondering, like, oh, I don't know. I hope he's hearing from the Lord, you know. But at the same time, we just crossed the Jordan River. We just stood outside the gates of our enemy and were circumcised and were unable to defend ourselves for several days. And the Lord was our rear guard. And the Lord caused us to cross the Jordan. And the Lord is with us. And so whatever God tells us to do, that's what we're going to do. I think it's a challenge to you and I because I do believe there are a lot of things that God has laid out in His Word for you and I to do. Instructions from the Lord on how to live, you know, the way we ought to do certain things. We all can probably think of some verse in the past that has convicted us. Well, I I just haven't quite got to the point where I can't obey that verse yet. But here, these guys entering into the victory, pulling down the stronghold, walking in the Spirit, they're going to obey the command of the Lord. And it doesn't make a lot of sense. The walls don't get weaker by walking around them. But they're going to obey. They're going to take what God has laid out for them, and they're going to move forward. It reminds me, you guys remember, what's that fellow's name? Had uh, leprosy and went to Elijah. He was a Syrian. Gehazi was a servant. Was it? Somebody said it. Naaman. Naaman goes, Naaman is is a great general for for the Assyrian army. And... And he's got leprosy. And so they're at war, actually, with Israel. It's kind of interesting. But uh, one of the guys in the king's court says to Naaman, you know, there's this holy guy in Israel. He might be able to heal you. Who is? It was a maiden who did what? The handmaiden, that's right, that that told Naaman. Told her landlord or whatever you call it to, <laughs> to go tell him, to go tell him. Yeah, so anyways he gets up this is a paraphrase he gets up and he's heading to uh to elijah but when he gets to elijah you know elijah doesn't even really talk to him gehazi or whatever his name is goes out and says hey there's a guy out there you know a syrian's got leprosy elisha he wants you to he wants you to <laughs> you guys are killing me he wants you guys he wants to be healed. So, Elisha, the second cousin of Elijah, anyway, says to him, just go dip yourself seven times in the Jordan River. No, no, doesn't get to come before him, doesn't get to do any of those things. And we know Naaman's all upset, right? Doesn't make any sense. This is stupid. There's rivers everywhere. I could have took a bath any place. The Jordan's dirty. <coughs> There's better rivers where I come from. And he goes away mad. He might have. He might have. 
And so he's on his way. He's on his way, and, and one of his servants says to him, you know, if the, if the man of God had told you, you know, something else, wouldn't you have done it? We come all this way, might as well go dip in the Jordan. So he went and dipped. What happened after one dip? Nothing. Nothing happened after two, or after three, or after four, or after five, or after six, until he did it the seventh time. And then he was clean. And it's, again, yeah, again we have the, the number seven coming before us, washed in the water of the word, any number of things that wash away the sin, leprosy always being a picture of sin. But the point is, Jesus told him something. God gave him a, a direction through the prophet to go do something that didn't make a lot of sense. But when he was obedient, he pulled down a stronghold, right? He changed that guy's life forever. Being obedient to what God calls us to do. Well, here we have an army. They're ready to be obedient. They're ready to follow the Lord and do whatever God has, has given to them to do so. It says, in, as we go on in verse 6, And Joshua the son of Nun called the priests, and he said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns. Remember, that's shofars of jubilee, shofars of Ubal, before the Ark of of the Lord. So they got the worship team in front of the ark. Right? Seven priests, seven trumpets going in front of the ark. And the ark speaks of the presence of God, right? Isn't that where God met with the priests? Between the cherubim, the ark of the covenant. So we got the presence of God there going before them. Before the presence of God, we see the worship uh, the, symbolized by the seven priests and the seven trumpets. And he said to the people, Proceed and march around the city and let him who is armed advance before the ark of the Lord. So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people, seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets and the ark of the covenant followed them. And the armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpet and the rear guard came after the ark while the priests continued blowing the trumpet. So we have some Guard in the front, armed men before, and the rear guard following behind them. And in the midst of it all, we have the Ark of the Covenant uh, following the seven priests, blowing the seven trumpets. They're getting ready to go to battle. So Joshua commanded the people and said, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice. Nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, shout. Then you will shout. I had a, a thing like this while I was in the Marine Corps. The guys, the, the drill instructors that were before us told us when it was okay to talk and when it wasn't okay to talk. Joshua was saying to the people, I'll tell you when it's time to talk. Don't say a word. No sound with your mouth. Now, if you ever picture... I don't know if you, if you had any experience in the military, but you get a bunch of guys together who are ready and raring to fight, and you tell them to march around the city and don't say nothing. Man, that, that takes some will. Because all a guy ready for a fight wants to do is holler, scream. You know, when you see the battlefield and two guys running at each other, what do they do? They come at each other quiet? No, they're hollering, Whoa! Try to make the other guy scared, turn around and run the other way. 
But Joshua, he says, not a sound. Not a sound from you as you come. I'll tell you when to shout and then you will shout. So he had the ark of the Lord circle the city going around at once. And they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. Now what do you think the folks of Jericho thought? They've been waiting for the attack, right? You know they're sounding the alarm. Here they come, here they come. The army's coming. I see the army coming. And there's these guys carrying this funny looking box. And people blowing trumpets. What are they doing? What are they doing? Wow, they're, 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 they're going around. They're, they didn't come into the gate. They're walking around the city. They're going around the back. And what are they doing now? Retreating. They're going back to the camp. What was that all about? I don't know. I don't know. How confounded they must have been. Doesn't the Lord tell us in Corinthians chapter 1 how often he likes to use the foolish to confound the wise? The weak to confound the strong? He uses all these things. Why? So that it will be unmistakable to understand who is responsible for the victory, right? Anytime we find ourselves going into the battle... We have to remember that we overcome the enemy by faith. We overcome the enemy by faith. Faith. The Lord laid out for us that in the flesh it is impossible to please God. We know in Isaiah that our righteousness is how? Filthy rags. Filthy rags. Best we can do is filthy rags. And anything I do in the flesh, which is just about everything I do, is not going to please God. The way I'm going to please God is by faith. That's what the hall of faith is all about, right? That's what Hebrews 11 is all about. All these great men and women who, who encountered incredible victory, not because of might of arms or how wonderful they were, but because they believed God. They clung to his promises. They applied his word to their life. And they achieved the pulling down of strongholds because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. Spiritual battles that we fight, that we face, that we fight, that we go through. They're won by the Spirit. The Spirit, how do we walk in the Spirit then? How do I do that? I, it's not some act of will beyond the point where I submit to what the Holy Spirit is trying to do. How the Holy Spirit is trying to guide me. How He's trying to lead me. We've talked about it before. We already know that God calls us to do crazy things, right? Sometimes He'll tell you to yell, Jesus loves you in the mailbox. Doesn't mean that that won't change somebody's life, right? I wonder how many people walked by that mailbox and just kept going. What, what, there's, there's all kind of opportunities in your day and in mine where we're sitting down and we might see someone and we just feel the Lord speaking to us. You need to go pray with them. Lord, I don't know them. But you just have this, this overwhelming sense. I should go. And we'll talk ourselves out of it nine times out of ten. And we miss out on the victory 
on this incredible journey that that step of obedience could take. So in as much as it is to be obedient, to choose, to submit to the Lord and say, God, I'm going to do what I feel like you're calling me to do. Well, Jackie, that, those are crazy things. But listen, I can tell you, we can go through the word of God and I can show you things that aren't so crazy that we don't do. That we make excuses for and say that doesn't apply to me. Or why should I make that a part of my life? Or I don't understand how that really works. Or, or whatever, any number of things that get us off the hook. For, for different scriptures that we read, that we feel God saying, Jackie, this is you. Are you willing to, to follow me in this? And it's a, it's a stronghold that's not going to be pulled down because we worked up our flesh to go do it in our own strength, but that we were willing to submit to what the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit was directing, and he will give us the victory. He'll give us a victory. Well, Jackie, you know, I did that once. I, I clung to a promise in the, wor- in the word. I held to the challenge that God laid on my heart. And I stepped out. And I did it. And nothing really happened. How many days did they walk around the city of Jericho and nothing happened? Seven days. The seventh day, they did it seven times. But was there fruit? Yeah, there was. There was at the end. The Lord says to us, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither rust destroys or moths destroy, rust corrupts, and thieves don't break in and steal. We don't want to, we want to be heavenly minded to the point where what am I, what am I investing, if you will, in the kingdom of God? And what God's trying to do and how God's trying to do that. Being obedient to what God's word is laying out to us. Well, they went home after the first day. And it says in verse 12, And Joshua rose, when? Early in the morning. And the priests took up the ark of the Lord. Then seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew the trumpets. And the armed men went before them and the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while the priests continued blowing the trumpet. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did six days. Now I bet the first couple of times the people in Jericho were freaking a little bit. But by the third and fourth time, they're probably not even sounding the trumpet anymore. They're all, here they come. I, mean, I bet they're going to walk around the city. What do you want to bet? What do you think they're doing? Why are they doing it? Maybe they even shouted. Can you think, did you ever think about the fact that the army is in a, in a position of weakness as they walk around the wall? I could throw anything off that wall at you. I could shoot arrows at you. We could... Throw rocks, dump oil, whatever. Any number of things could be accomplished. I mean, put yourself really out there in the hands of the Lord, walking around, not saying a single solitary word. Six days they did that. Six days they walked around. And then the scripture tells us about the seventh. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose when? Early... About the dawning of the day. And they marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day only, 
They marched around the city seven times. It takes endurance to continue when things don't make sense. It takes endurance to say, nothing seems to be changing. I'm applying what God told us to do, but I don't see anything happening. Just like Naaman dipping in the water. Sixth time I dipped, I still am a leper. It takes endurance. It's always too soon to quit because we never know that victory is not that next step around the corner. That next time around the bend. We want to experience that victory and they're going to experience the victory. They know this is the day that God had told them. And the seventh time it happened, when the priest blew the trumpet that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. What do you think that sounded like? This humongous army of guys just chomping at the bit now. By the seventh day, they're chomping at the bit. They haven't said a word, walked around this city, took whatever guff came down from the walls. When Joshua said shout, man, I bet a shout arose like we can only begin to imagine the, the passion, the passion of that shout as they, they hollered in verse 17. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live. She and all those who are in her house, because she hid the messengers we sent. Isn't that interesting? Originally they called them spies. What do we call them here? Messengers. The messengers bring a message. What message did they bring? They brought the message of salvation to Rahab. Everybody in Jericho knew the same thing Rahab knew, right? Everybody knew that God had parted the Red Sea. Everybody knew that God was watching over. Rahab even declared it. We have all seen, we all know what it is that God has done. But only one was willing to do something about it. Only one was willing to repent And to turn her back on everything she knew and say, in essence, with Ruth, your people will be my people, your God will be my God, where you go, I will go, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Lock, stock, and barrel, right? Everything she was, she was turning her back on and giving that to the God the Most High. Rahab was to be saved. Well, while we're thinking about that, let's turn to, to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2 is... Uh, 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4. It's a, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a scripture you may be familiar with. It says this, 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but he cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And he did not spare the ancient world, but he saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. 
And he delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man, again, twice, we see Lot being called righteous. You and I reading the story might not feel that way in Genesis. But how did God see him? Righteous. Because he believed God and it was accounted unto him righteousness. Same way with Abraham. We know Abraham was righteous because he believed God. We know by the works of the flesh no man can please God. It must be a work of faith. Trust. Lot trusted in the Lord. Obviously from the scripture that Peter lays out for us here. Tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Verse 9. Don't forget this. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. God knows how to deliver his people. Case in point, Rahab the harlot. No reason for them to send spies we talked about, right? Jericho, God already knew the plan. It didn't require any spying. And then here we see Joshua say, Tell the messengers who took the message, who came to Rahab, and through whom, through Rahab, by her witness, whoever would come to her house and have that scarlet thread of redemption, the scarlet cord hanging out of her window, speaking of the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood that would cover their sin, whoever was within that building, within that room, built on the wall, would be saved. That means if they shouted and all the walls fell down, it meant it wasn't hard to find Rahab's place. Because it was the only part of the wall that was still standing. That's where Rahab's house was. They didn't need that scarlet cord hanging out the window to to decide which house it was. They could just go to the only one left on the wall. God knows how to deliver the righteous... And reserve judgment for the wicked. We see those examples over and over and over as we go through the scriptures. Over and over again we see God bringing his judgment to the land and delivering the righteous. Bringing his judgment to the land and delivering the righteous. Same thing he does here with Rahab. And so it says, only Rahab the harlot will live, she and all who are in her house. Verse 18. And then he gives them this warning. And you by all means abstain from the accursed things. Lest you become accursed when you take the accursed things. And make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. That means don't take anything. This is the first battle. And the first fruit always goes where? To the Lord. God's going to tell them in the next verse. It's his. Just leave it. Don't touch it. If you touch it, you're going to bring a curse. Don't touch it. I call that fair warning. Fair warning. Don't touch it. Leave it alone. Leave it all to the Lord. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. The first fruits go to God. All throughout the scripture, we see it over and over and over again. The first fruits of the harvest, where did it go? To the Lord. 
The first fruits, where did it go? To the Lord. It was always dedicated to the Lord. The firstborn, to the Lord. Dedicated to the Lord. Over and over and over again is that concept that we honor the Lord first. Before we worry about the other things that we can worry about. And so he says in verse 20, So the people shouted when the, peace, when the priests blew the trumpets. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat and the people went up into the city. Every man straight before him and they took the city. Whenever I think about this battle, it reminds me that we who have gained a similar victory through the victory of Jesus Christ our Lord and we're looking for that, that abundant life that Jesus Christ promised ought to remember to live like victors and not like victims. That we want to we wanna live as the victory, in the victory that Jesus Christ has won for us. Amen. The scripture lays out for us that we should meditate on the pure and lovely, doesn't it? That we should keep our eyes focused on the good. That we should keep our eyes focused on that which Christ has done for us. Paul would say, forgetting those things which lie behind, I press on toward the upward call of Christ Jesus my Lord. You can almost see Paul saying, I don't look back, I'm looking at Jesus. I'm moving toward Jesus. That's what it is to live as victors. Victims? They're always looking back at the failures or what they don't have. They're always focused on what's wrong instead of what's right. And when they focus on those things, they're not fighting from victory. The battle's already lost before they fought it. Already lost. We want to keep our eyes focused upon the Lord and recognize that the weapons of our warfare are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. Just like this. Verse 21. They utterly destroyed all that was in the city. Both man and woman. Young and old. Ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. They killed it all. Everything. Because God has already declared in his word. We've been through it all to this point. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Here we find ourselves in Joshua. We should know by now. That the clean becomes unclean simply by being in the same place. You know it to be true every time you do laundry, right? We already discussed, I don't do laundry. I don't take my dirty clothes and rub them against dirty clothes and make them clean. And I can't take my clean clothes and rub them against dirty clothes and make the dirty clothes clean by rubbing them against the clean. What happens? The clean gets dirty. God said, wipe it all out. Utter destruction. Because if you leave even one, it's going to stain you. What's the picture for you and I? What are you leaving in your life? What are you not cutting out of your life? The Lord says if you leave that dirty stuff, if you leave that unclean, if you leave that sin or that weight or that thing in your life, it is going to destroy your walk with the Lord and your victory will be like chapter 7 instead of chapter 6. Because that's the problem in chapter 7. 
sin in the camp. Utterly destroy it. Wipe it out. Make no provision for the flesh. No in the Greek means... No, you guys are so smart. Absolutely right. No in the Greek means nothing. Zip, zap, nothing. Make no provision for the flesh. Well, what would happen if we actually live like that? I don't know. No time like the present. No time like the present. The challenge to me is, and for years, I would say this... The, the same thing, you know, I, I just don't think it can be done. It can't be done. So because it can't be done, I might as well leave that scorpion in my pocket, right? Every once in a while, I'll stick my hand in there and just get stung. Or maybe I could take it out. Maybe I could turn it off. Maybe I could put it in the garbage. Maybe I could say, you know, I'm not supposed to make any provision for the flesh. And take the word of God seriously and cling to the promise of God and walk in obedience and see what happens. See the victories that we we discover as we walk with the Lord in that way. Well, he goes on, verse 22, But Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman. And all that she has as you swore to her. And the young men who had been the spies went in and, and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. Can you imagine what that was like for Rahab? To go to all her friends and family, all, the, all her family members and say, hey, Hey, the children of Israel are coming. They promise if you come into my house and you stay in my house, that, that, they'll, they'll, that everything's going to be okay. How many of them do you think said, well, you know, I got this really good, cool plasma TV in, in my place, so can I bring that with me? No, I don't think you can. Leave it. What do you need that thing for? Well, if I leave it here, it's going to get all destroyed and somebody else is going to end up with it. So, every one of her family members left how much? Everything. They left it all. And they came into that one place. And I'm sure there was a bunch of them. So they were probably throwing out some of Rahab stuff too to make room for everybody. To wait for that day. And that day came. And they were saved. Because they cared more for the salvation and the promise of the Lord through Rahab to them than they cared about that house, that new donkey, that four-wheel drive mule they had, (laughs) the big, fancy, pretty white horse. They, They cared more for the Lord than for that stuff. And they came. Isn't it the same way with the disciples when Jesus called them? They're sitting there working, right? Getting paid, making money. Jesus said, come and follow me. Did they bring their nets with them? They put that boat on their back? They left all? Even Peter said that, right? Lord, we've left all to follow you. And the Lord said, hey, follow me that way. And you will have treasure in heaven that you can't imagine.
wait, what would happen if we lived that way? What would life be like? What would our spiritual walk be like if that's the walk we had? It's a challenging question, to say the least. These guys left everything, came to Rahab's house, and they were spared. And Joshua spared Rahab, the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers who Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Because she hid the messengers. And Joshua said, charged them at that time saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds the city Jericho. He will lay its foundation with his firstborn and with his youngest. He shall set up its gates. That curse of Joshua is going to come true. We'll see. As the city of Jericho comes to that point again. And so verse 27. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout all the country. Woo! The victory. Chapter 7 begins with an ominous word, doesn't it? But. What do they tell you when you say but? You just erased everything that came before it. You know, you're the most wonderful person I've ever met, but I don't think all that other part mattered right now. We'll see that as we look at this. So I want to leave you with just one thing. I'm going to take you back to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. In uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 26, I just want to share a, a story with you, and I'll read it this time instead of paraphrasing it. <laughs> About Uzziah. About Uzziah. Uzziah. Isaiah talked about that guy, didn't he? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Verse 9 of chapter 26. Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, at the valley gate, at the corner buttress of the wall. And he fortified them. And And also he built towers in the desert. And he dug many wells, for he had much livestock, both in the lowlands and the plains. He also had farmers and vine dressers in the mountains and in Carmel, for he loved the soil. Moreover, Uzziah had an army of fighting men who went out to war by companies according to the number of their roles prepared by Jael and the scribe Maessa and the officer under the hand of Hananiah, one of the king's captains. The total number of the chief officers of the mighty men of valor was 2,600. And under their authority was an army of 307,500 that made war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. And Uzziah prepared for them, for the entire army, shields and spears and helmets and body armor and bows and slings to cast stones. And he made devices in Jerusalem, invented by skillful men, to be on the towers and on the corners to shoot arrows and large stones, catapults and bacillus. So his fame spread far and wide, for he was marvelously helped till he became strong. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Uzziah was a great king. But you hear what it said? 
He did all these things until he became strong. And when he became strong, he lost it all. Paul, the scripture lays out for us, had a thorn in his flesh, right? Prayed three times to the Lord that the Lord would remove the thorn in his flesh. But God said, no, I won't. For my strength is made perfect in your weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. Everything that we need is in God. As soon as we start trusting in our own strength and our ability to build this big machine, this mighty, this mighty kingdom which I have built, that's what Nebuchadnezzar said, as soon as we become strong, we take our eyes off the Lord. But when we're weak, when we're frail, when we don't have it all together, then God says, now there's a vessel I can use. One who will trust me to give him the victory and tell the truth about where the victory came from. For the victory comes from the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we come before you and we just pray that, Lord, you would uh, just challenge us. Challenge us, God, by the word. Challenge us by areas within the word wherein we are not being obedient. Things that you're declaring, calling to us, directing us to that we're not willing to change. We're not willing to lay aside. We're not willing to, to turn over to you, Lord. I pray that we would follow even like Rahab and her family and leave all that garbage behind. What happens if we do that? What happens if we follow the Lord truly with all our heart, with everything we have within us? Lord, I pray that you would just grant unto us that strength by the power of your Spirit to live life like that. Knowing and recognizing that every day is a battle and every one of those battles will be won if we stand mighty in God. Stand, therefore, in the power of the Lord and His might. Lord, I pray, God, that you, as you challenge us, Lord, that that you would find us willing, willing to lay those things aside, willing to lay them down, willing to surrender to the direction of your spirit, and that we might pull down the strongholds in our life, that we might have the endurance, that we would cling to the promise, even as Joshua clung to the promise that you gave when you gave the marching orders, that I have given you this. And as we cling to that promise, Lord, that we would have endurance. Until the victory is done, the promised victory is given, we will march. Lord God, we pray you would watch over and keep us, Lord. Help us draw near to you. May we fall more in love with you every day. May we seek, Lord, as we step out. May we seek to live that life. Maybe other people would say, that's just crazy. That just might be what you're calling us to. 
Lord, we pray that you, Lord God, would be our first love, our primary passion, our only desire, that we would follow you with all our heart wherever you lead and enjoy the abundant life that you promise. We give you all the praise and the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray.